This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharif Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Rabbi Maya Benjamin was much loved and charismatic leader of Temple Israel in Weinberg, Israel. He had an unforgettable sense of humor, was tirelessly committed to his congregation, and was courageously outspoken against apartheid. So says Uti Ben Yosef, the author of that chapter in Jonathan Anser's book, Mentures in the Trenches. His son, Rabbi David Benjamin, is my guest now to tell me more about his dad. Uh, Rabbi, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Sharice, and Shabbat Shalom to you and to all the listeners. Your dad was affectionately known as Sunny. Can you tell me a little bit about him? My dad was uh, originally, uh, he was born and raised in the East End of London, so what he would be known as an East Ender. There was a very strong Jewish community there back then before uh, the war, Second World War. And um, he grew up in an Orthodox home, and um, he then uh, was drafted. Well, he actually volunteered, I understand, just before uh, uh, the war broke out uh, to serve in the British Army. So he served in the British Army for several years um, during Second World War. After the Second World War, when everyone got demobilized more or less at the same time, he was trying to figure out what he should do. And it was suggested to him that he should get on a boat to South Africa because he had a cousin in Cape Town. So he, he made the trip to South Africa, arrived in Cape Town, quick, quite quickly discovered the progressive congregation which had been established not that much earlier by Rabbi Sherman in Cape Town, and somehow got involved. I understand his first job was actually teaching judo to the kids who were very enthusiastic about having this real British soldier right there in the shul. So that's how he started. But he got very quickly, he got into Jewish studies as well. He, he had a very strong traditional background. So he, they used him as a cheder teacher and he, got, he kind of grew into it. And he sort of after a while became an unofficial assistant to the rabbi. Later on, he went to, he was asked to come to East London to help uh, set up the progressive congregation there. Then he spent some time in Durban, went back to East London. My brother and sister and I were born in East London. My mum, he met in Durban at, at a youth camp. Well, the story that, that's covered in the book is really, I think it starts more or less in East London. I don't know too much, much about the years before I was born, but I have early memories and it's really, it's quite amusing, I suppose, looking back. Uh, as a child, I used to brag to my friends in the kindergarten in East London, I remember this well, that my dad had friends who were policemen. I thought this was the coolest thing, that the police used to come over to our house like, and visit my dad. And my mum used to give them tea and, uh, you know, they used to sit down. And for me, I, you know, I thought this was the greatest thing. And, you know, I would in invariably go to the nursery school the following day and brag to all my friends about how my dad is like, he knows all the policemen. Now, <laughs> it took a few years until I realized the actual context of these visits from the police. They were actually, let's say, call them thinly veiled warnings. Well, he was called then Reverend Benjamin. He wasn't yet an ordained rabbi. The Reverend Benjamin should, should behave himself, you know, under the what was then uh, uh, the system in South Africa. And, and the reason they were interested in my dad, from, from my understanding, was he was very involved in an organization, which I think exists until today, the Institute of Race Relations. I mean, it was quite a tame sort of liberal organization, but even back then that was too much for the authorities to swallow. And he was also very, very friendly and involved with a Christian minister by the name of Robbie Robertson. And Robbie Robertson was known for having set up the first multiracial church in South Africa. Um, people might know that the Eastern Cape at the time was a very, very active area. You know, Biko was in the Eastern Cape. Donald Woods was also in that sort of crowd. There was like a 
crowd of people who were involved, and my dad was in that that sort of group. Again, you know, my dad wasn't a revolutionary. He was just, you know, really just saying what needed to be said and saying the decent thing and the right thing about we should all, you know, treat each other with respect. But that was enough really to arouse the interests of the authorities. Um, My dad tells about how people with very short haircuts and sunglasses used to come and sit at the back of the shul and take notes or or sometimes he used to give lectures and they would be I remember he he gave one lecture somewhere and and he said he was so thrilled that someone in the audience was taking notes he says great he'll be looking forward to an interesting discussion afterwards and of course these two guys just left before the end and the other students said no 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 they were security police just making sure that you weren't saying anything untoward Part of my early childhood in East London, as I say, and as a child, I, I was clueless. I had no idea really what all this was about. You mentioned that your dad was just an ordinary guy. And that was the whole point of the book, Mentors in the Trenches, to kind of find the ordinary people, not not those that we all know about, but ordinary people who did ordinary things. And you've recalled some of your memories and, and seen through the eyes of a child. It was obviously very innocent and quite exciting, possibly. But there was pressure on your dad. It eventually affected his health. How did he deal with it? My dad used to always quote this line from a poem from Gray's Elegy. It was, many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. I thought that was a lovely line. As the years went by, I thought, you know, that in a way that that really reflects on my dad himself. Those who, who knew him knew he was actually a very, he was very charismatic. But he wasn't, he never sought the limelight. And, and the limelight also didn't really find him either. So that the fact that this book is now, I mean, Uta Ben Yosef, you know, who was uh, well known to us at the time, and her, her late husband was also a, a professor and also a, a rabbi in the, in the reform movement. I think she initiated the writing of this chapter. Such a moving thing for us, because really, as you say, he, was, he, he didn't have any pretensions of being any kind of hero. He just really was doing what he thought was the right, the right thing to do. He also didn't want to get other people in trouble for it. So, so my dad, actually, as I said, he was originally from England. So he always kept his British citizenship. He never took up South African citizenship. And he, he always thought, you know, this, maybe this is kind of looking after me. Maybe the reason is that they don't get in that, you know, they, they sort of have these, these talking to's over tea and that, you know, and I'm not getting detained or anything. It's because of that. He wasn't sure, but maybe that was the reason. And, you know, he, he didn't want to get his congregation into trouble. So he was very active in a personal way, but not in a way that he didn't want to implicate anyone else. He understood that the real dilemma that the Jewish community had then of, you know, not wanting to upset the authorities because who knows if they would come after the Jews, right? As you say, yeah, you know, my dad, he was a very calm and collected person, but but he did have health problems for, for some time, mainly heart-related. I don't know what, whether I can attribute these to the kind of pressure he was under. I know that there was a stage, and this is much later, you know, much later, we, we actually went to the UK after East London, and we came back. We were in Springs for a while, and then we, most of his rabbinical career, he was in Cape Town, in Temple Israel Weinberg. And I know he got threats, and I know that our, our phone was bugged, and um, you know, he used to take part in, in various protest meetings, etc. There's a, actually a, there's a picture like there was in the Argus, and, he, and also in an Australian newspaper, where he's like lighting this memorial candle for the victims of apartheid outside St. George's Cathedral. And what he also used to do, this was kind of a quiet thing, he used to visit detainees, uh, political detainees. And then I think got him, you know, not everybody was happy about that. Certainly authorities weren't too happy about that. I can tell you that, that maybe the most dramatic event that took place was that in 1986, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the government decided to clear out what was then known as the Crossroads Squatter Camp. I think it's might, it might still be there. 
because the people who were considered illegal migrants according to the law at the time and it was quite an, an incredible idea that they had like totally inhumane that it was it was raining it was a really harsh winter and they just brought bulldozers and bulldozed the camp row by row and uh, my father and, and there was also a church who did the same thing but temple israel weinberg in, took people for, who were just homeless from that moment on uh, took them in and kept them in the hall we had a very large Temple Israel has a large hall, and there were like several hundred people in the hall. The hall, interesting, was as joined to the synagogue. It's actually on, 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 on the high holy days, we used to open the partition and the synagogue would be much larger. But we would have shul services and there would be these, some of the people in the shul were oblivious to the fact that actually just behind the partition, there were hundreds of, you know, people sitting there, families with kids. They made such an effort to keep everybody quiet, you know. They were every now and then you'd hear a baby cry, but it generally they kept it really. It was astonishingly quiet. It was just incredible, and of course that was in defiance of uh, the authorities. And I think he took quite a lot of flack from that, but he insisted on going through with it. And of course, people, other members of the shul, obviously went along with him. Fortunately, as I said, you know, remember at the time that that was, you know, nobody knew that apartheid was going to end and everything would turn out. <laughs> You know, at the time, it was a huge risk, and one didn't notice him. And really, not long after that, my dad's heart uh, problems uh, got worse. I don't know whether to attribute it to that, but obviously, he was under pressure. My mom as well. My mom was teaching at a school for colored, a Catholic school for so-called colored girls. Uh, so we were very much in that whole milieu of awareness of what was going on and what was not right about what was going on. We always had that there. Whether that was what affected him health, or was it just family genetics, or something, or smoking? He was a smoker. I forgot to say that you're joining us from Israel, where you live. Um, you are from Israel, and your family moved there. Your dad moved there. Your mom moved there as well. When in your life did you suddenly realize what it was that your dad was doing, and it wasn't as exciting, well, possibly exciting in the way that you thought it was? I think after school, after high school, when I when I sort of got into university and became more and more politically aware of things. Even though at high school I was relatively politically aware, I remember writing an article for the school newspaper about why I didn't think it was appropriate to celebrate Republic Day because of the situation in the, the general situation of schools in the country, which weren't white. And my mother gave me lots of information <laughs> to put in there. And actually what happened is the morning, this, we printed out these copies of the school newspaper and the morning it was supposed to be distributed. The, the headmaster called me in along with the editorial committee and informed us, he said, just by the way, I've destroyed all the copies of the school newspaper. He said, you know, he kind of said, you know, we understand your intentions were good, but this isn't something that we can uh, we can have at the school. He gave a kind of lame excuse. He said the word bloody appeared in one of in another article, and he thought that in itself was a reason to burn the entire <laughs> all the copies of the paper. So we, we had this awareness. So I suppose towards the end of high school into university, we're becoming more and more aware of what was going on, and uh, the blinkers were sort of coming off. You know, my my parents. I think like most parents, we tried, tried to bring us up kind of in a fairly protected environment. But we did have an idea, I mean, we had an idea that things were wrong. I mean, because remember, we lived in England for a while as well. So there we, you know, I had black kids in my class in England, wasn't considered anything out of the ordinary. So we had a bit of perspective. But again, you know, for most of us, it was still kind of, you know, we didn't too, ask too many questions about the way things were until we got to university. Rabbi, there is going to be a, a launch of the Menches in the Trenches book in Israel. Obviously, we as the board are very excited about and, and understand our expat community are too. Um, you are going to be one of the speakers at the launch, um, together with the Goldreich brothers, uh, Nick oh. and 
Paul. So it is going to be obviously an exciting um, time. In terms of you growing up, I mean, you kind of grew up Israeli, British or English and South African. To what extent is your identity in Israel, how do you find your identity in Israel? I think it's very formed, very much formed by my father. I mean, the fact that I became a rabbi myself, it it happened much later in life. I, I started out in law. I actually studied law at UCT before coming to Israel. And I actually spent most of my time in Israel so far in, in the military. I was in the in the IDF for about 20 years as a, as a legal advisor. When I retired from the IDF about 14 years ago, that's when this kind of idea that maybe I should be going into the family business. Because it was after my dad had passed away. He passed away quite a while ago, 95. So um, so then it kind of uh, kind of hit me. I like to think that I'm, you know, somehow carrying on a legacy that that he began of, uh, you know, that you need to pursue justice. I had the sense that I was doing that when I was in the IDF legal division. I mean, I think there were two issues there, which there were two unjust, you know, lack, let's say injustices. You know, first of all, there are little injustices. And I always thought you want this. The idea is to try and make sure that the IDF behaves in the most moral way possible and according to the law. But the other injustice I found, which I, which I spent time on as well, is that the rest of the world doesn't appreciate how much effort the IDF makes to do that. I mean, I was one of the people involved in that effort. So I know, I know about it. But the world there wouldn't, you know, there was no credit given, no no acknowledgement of that. On the contrary, very much on the contrary. And so I got quite involved in sort of after that kind of trying to explain Israel's position and exactly how things do work and how seriously they do take international law and and, and ethics, etc. And and so I got that from my, my very sort of my Jewish uh, values, which I got from my from my parents really. And I've been following that through. I'm, I'm involved. I'm actually involved in a in a project in Johannesburg, but remotely. There's Temple Israel Hillbrow in Johannesburg. The driving force there really is the ageless, priceless, tireless Reva Foreman, along with I think she has people Jacob Hurwitz, Marion Bubbly helping her. So it's a really wonderful thing that that shul is still going. It does wonderful work. And Reva established the Heritage Center on top of that, which is a social action project. So I'm involved in that remotely still, even though I'm here in, in Israel. In a way, it is also carrying on your dad's legacy in terms of, you know, developing the um, progressive synagogue shuls in South Africa. I mean, it, it is a direct continuation of your, your late dad's work. Absolutely. Well, especially, you know, Temple Israel in Johannesburg was actually well known for its social action program. Their founding rabbi was Rabbi Moshe Chaim Weiler, or Moses Cyrus Weiler, I think he was called in South Africa. And he was known for, for, well, him and the sisterhood of the congregation, they set up a school in Alexandra, which is still going today. That was at a time when, you know, Bantu education was the norm and black kids weren't supposed to get a proper education. So this school was set up to actually to resist that and to give kids a proper education. That school, the MC Wireless School, is still there in Alexandra. So that yeah, whole, whole legacy is, is part of it. And, and we're trying to, you know, in Temple Israel, and the Temple Israel Heritage Center, we're trying to, to pursue that, you know, to, to in issues which are relevant for, for today. Incredible work. And I agree with you. Ariva Foreman is absolutely an amazing, incredible woman who, whose energy is just absolutely boundless. Rabbi Benjamin, thank you very much for joining me. I'm sure the book launch in Israel is going to be amazing. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of uh, South Africans there and hopefully others who would like to learn more about the incredible work of ordinary, in this case wasn't South African, ordinary English, uh, ordinary Jews, perhaps we can say, who, who just got involved. So thank you very much for sharing that story. My pleasure and Shabbat Shalom. All the best. Shabbat Shalom. That was Rabbi David Benjamin sharing the story of his father, Rabbi Maya.
or Sunny, as you described, known, Benjamin, whose story features adventures in the trenches. <laughs>